Tonight, we welcome the prolific Jamie DeWolf to the stage of the Phoenix Theater. Jamie is a film director, a writer, a slam poet, a spoken word artist, a circus ringmaster, and much more. This man has an incredible body of work, and tonight we'll get to know him better as we explore the things he makes and what drives him to make those things. Please welcome to the program, Jamie DeWolf. Hello. We don't need to go into what just happened, but uh, <laughs> you're, what we're gonna, God struck you down. God struck me down. He hit the record button and he turned it off. We hate that. But you're also a teacher. You're also a vaudevillian. Yeah. We are also a, a producer, and the list goes on. And as a child, you wanted to be a preacher. And I think that's hilarious because Tom, I think even before knowing that fact, had an observation about well, that's you. that's true, yeah. What I, was that observation? I, I thought there'd, there'd be a great future, a great monetary future in you being a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, you saw that after my poems tonight? You know, kind of an El- Elmer Gantry type thing. So just, just at, the, at, this, at this late in the game, after all these circuses and burlesque shows, I need to take a zigzag. You go... Well, no, I, I well, think, you know what? I, so I had I'd spent the afternoon with you. Um, mm-hmm. I'd I'd been reading some of your biography, mm-hmm. uh, watching some of your spoken word stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a great time watching a few of your videos, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and and so I knew that there was the background. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you had decided to go that way, you would have been an incredible preacher, <laughs> except for my capacity. Uh, uh, well, my capacity to be full of shit has really re- reached its limits. So, I mean, I think that even the shows I I literally just came back from, where I got over half the audience naked, I still believe I'm a preacher, but a vice. You know what I mean? I'm I'm a preacher of exhibition, not inhibition. And so I use a lot of those same skill sets. To be fair, on well, what the regular. do you think? So you've changed what you preach. Are are you? Uh, how does that feel? Well, I, I constantly kind of say that, like I, I really feel that what I try to push is almost like a church of individuality, which doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Which is is basically a show. I mean, that's what what vaudeville and variety shows are: is making everybody celebrating everybody. And a lot of the performance in the theater that I do is is very interactive, um, consciously. So that that's a large part of it is is constantly involving the audience and reminding them that they are a part of the show, that everybody's part of it, and celebrating that. And in some ways, those are some of the the tactics that I use. The last time I actually went to church, I was there because I was taking notes. <laughs> so and I've used a lot of those notes yeah. in my shows later on for years and there was a great line uh when we were recording but not mm. recording earlier uh where you said you could have made a fortune and of course uh, yeah. you said uh, a misfortune <laughs> That's and right. i thought you know we need to make sure that gets in when we actually push record a misfortune a misfortune yes. um but i have to ask what makes a child want to be a preacher because that is not something that i hear a lot wow that's funny. I, yeah, I guess I never thought of that. But I don't think my mom ever, has ever even asked me why I wanted to be a preacher. I think that she just was hoping that I would go down that road. I know that my my mom and my dad got married in a very, you know, evangelical religious ceremony. They met and both wanted to be missionaries together. And religion was a real cornerstone of my childhood. And that was also where she met my stepfather, was also at church. And church is one of the most dominant social gatherings that I had when I was young. 
And I just think I had a natural kind of instinct towards being performative and writing and so kind of coming up with sermons and, and writing what you would say and I would occasionally burst into ill-advised monologues on the playground about <laughs> damnation and salvation and uh, I think like many performers that I wasn't that great in the world um, one-on-one so you know you just like retreat to the stage where you're gonna suddenly channel spirits and and god and and the whatnot and i mean just also the fact that you could be a conduit for this powerful force and i don't know if anybody has been to a church where they do the speaking in tongues thing but i mean to watch to watch that little freeze tag relay race across a church you know the preacher stops talking and then some person at the back is like ah you know and, and everyone goes hushed and starts murmuring and then you know some woman leans herself out of her wheelchair and she translates it and everyone is hushed and whispered and i'm asking my mom what's what's happening and they said god is here with us and god is communicating this and and you know i was like man i want to be a part of that action <laughs> but i mean i i was very very devout i mean i i i have this in a Piece, but it's true. People think I'm exaggerating, but I, I would save my allowance and send it to missionaries working with cannibals in the Congo. At least, <laughs> at least that's where I thought I was sending my money. But that was that they would send me back, you know, pamphlets, and that was the whole hook of it. And at the same time, I guess that I was also just drawn to the act of of preaching is also this agitating an audience. And you're also constantly using this evocative imagery of, of hell. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all of this, like, let us come together. But its real counterweight is hell and all of the, the, the horrific things that will happen to you in hell. And I think I had a very macabre sensibility when I was young. I mean, I was the, in all my Sunday school classes, I was the most obsessed with the Antichrist and was always trying to read all of the, you know, the conspiracy theories. I, I mean, up until I believe it was my freshman year in high school, I remember vividly I was walking around with a book that um, explained in detail, chapter by chapter, over 400 pages, why Gorbachev was an Antichrist and, you know, his birthmark was the mark of the beast. And it was all of like Chernobyl translates to Wormwood, which translates to, you know, I mean, it was just this constant biblical layers. And, but I mean, I was that religious for that long. I mean, Jesus was my imaginary friend uh, in many ways. So like I, I was kind of a loner even as a kid, but I always had this odd ability to sort of mobilize lots of kids on the playground to do sort of outlandish things. And I don't know where that came from. And, but I, I knew I could do that. And that just sort of always stuck with me um, in terms of that. So I mean, some of it was maybe the, the, the verbal capacity of it and the stage of it. I mean, they, you get sweet organ music, you know? And I mean, it's like, I, that's a good question though, because I mean, when you come to church, what the hell else does anybody else want to be? You know what I mean? What do you want to be? I mean, I guess musicians would want to be the organ player. You know, but well, I mean, <laughs> it seems like what they're selling, though, oh, selling what they're definitely selling, what they're selling. We don't is, need to be play nice is life after death. Right. And, you know, we're so afraid of death. Right. And, uh, and but, hell, too. But through and hell, 
but through Christ and through God, you can live forever. That's correct. Yeah, it's the sweetest business transaction on the planet, which is basically, <laughs> I promise you everything the minute you die. But before that, your suffering yes. is valuable and is holy, and it's a real, real sweet hustle. That was uh, one of Scientology's biggest mistakes is to try to promise you things in this lifetime. Christianity, it all happens on death. You know, it's everything is God's will up until death, and then you get the sweet candy bars and the gold-plated yes, roads in heaven. And, and all that. But I mean, it was, it was just a constant omnipresent, I mean, for like better, I mean, it was just so permeated into my brain that it took me years to really kind of disengage and, and dismantle a lot of Christianity that had been in my head. And because I was so devout, you know, I mean, I, I really felt that I was on that road and it was devastating to my mother when I started turning to the dark side and embracing the Anakin in me, you know, and that was, that was, it caused such a huge rupture between me and my parents because they had in some ways viewed me as, you know, almost like a chosen, chosen one that was going to, to push it forward. I mean, I was the one that had read all the Bible and the other kids hadn't uh, in the Sunday school. And I was the one that could quote scripture back and I would have really, really complicated theological conversations um, with my Sunday school instructors, but those same theological conversations is actually what ended up leading me away um, in a very, very direct way from the teachings of Christianity. I mean, because the questions that I was asking and the answers that I was getting, I was asking as a believer, and they just the the charade started to fall apart, and the the mist started to part. <laughs> so, has have you and your mom come to, to terms with this? I had a daughter, and I, I think that the terms that me and my mom came to is uh, she's sweet to give up on me, but my daughter still has a chance. <laughs> so, you know, she's like, well, you did give us this amazing, beautiful daughter, and you may be a lost cause, and I hope I don't have to look down from heaven to watch you writhe in hell. And occasionally religion will come up and she'll start to go into the hell arena. I'm like, mom, it's, it's okay. I'm, there's not a hell. There's not a hell. Trust me. <laughs> but I think as a natural performer, which it sounds like of all the things you can say of you, it seems like from, yeah. from uh, early childhood, you had the desire to be a part of uh, a production, to be, mm-hmm. to be somebody who gets in front of people and moves people. Right. I mean, to me, like, isn't that what religion and politics is all about? Like just swaying the people, getting the people behind you and sometimes in pretty nefarious ways. And when you right. were young, you didn't really get that. Right. Uh, you wanted to be a part of that. But as you got right. older, you know, obviously the veil was lifted. Right. And you were like, uh, this is not the, <laughs> this is not the legacy I want to leave behind. Right. But it does feel like you integrated aspects of what preacher you would have been in right. your life to follow. Absolutely. And even consciously at this point is, you know, at the end of every Tourette's Without Regrets, a show I do in, in Oakland, a lot of shows I stand there and I shake every hand that walks out of the venue and we start the opening of every show where everybody rises and Kermit's uh, Rainbow Connection plays <laughs> and the entire audience is asked to hug strangers and to you know, whisper your safe word in their ear and if you're down for threesomes and the one <laughs> like in some respects I'm still am a communal <laughs> leader in some 
perspective, but I view that uh, I've taken a lot of that kind of skill set and that same sort of motivation and have done something very consciously and purposely that is celebrating sort of people's freedom and their their exhibition, their um, and their individuality. I mean, like like celebrating artists, you know what I mean, and, and condemning over one night of a show of to not be passive, you know, to not just embrace. Um, you know, being a voyeur to your own life. That's a quote that I say often during during the show. Um, I mean, we have ground rules for the show as well. So, I mean, in some respects, like when I do shows, I think there's kind of this convergence of my teaching experience and then also my religious background <laughs> and that I'm converging them and sort of commanding them like a kindergarten class or a high school class where I'm using scaffolding tricks of like, good evening, you know, Welcome everybody. Let's have a uh, everybody greet each other. You know we're going to do that, and then I'm going to lay out rules. You know, and everything is sort of this more distorted lens. I mean, my rules invoke a lot of violence. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was just pointing this out the other day. I mean, we one of the rules we have is ask for it, um, which is about consent. You know, and if and if a I'm like, you're going to see many performers just like this. And a woman will stand out and who's one of them, you know, she's dressed in some crazy outlandish outfit. And you're going to see women like this and men like this walking through the audience. And, you know, it's a very crowded room. And if someone just happens to grab your ass, what do you, what do, what does the host personally encourage this entire audience to do? And they all yell, stab that motherfucker. And I say, yeah, put your keys to your hands and punch him in the throat. And, uh, and I realized someone asked me, I was just in Canada, right? And they were, they were like, you know, your hosting style is like, you're so aggressive. You know, most people aren't used to that aggression in a lot of shows. And I realized the secret of that or, or the why, the origin story is that I've never, doing shows in downtown Oakland, when we started Stress Out Regrets at the first all ages venue in Oakland. Monthly show that you do started it 20 years ago. My that's God, right. still that's, going. That's right. And and when we started the all ages venue in downtown Oakland, there are three venues around us where that all got shut down because people got shot, um, literally shot. They would have, you know, a rap battle and someone gets shot. They'd have a hip hop night. Someone got shot. And I mean, this is in the months while I'm doing the shows. And it was like that venue where people would give me flyers, come and check out this show. I would go to check out that show and the venue was shut down and someone's like, you know, it's gone because someone got shot and they got shot in the parking lot, whatever. So, I mean, a lot of my hosting style is a sort of aggressive nature because it's been 20 years and no one has gotten shot or stabbed at my shows. And bizarrely, that's one of the, the you know, my greatest achievement that I've done is that no one's gotten shot at my show. And because honestly, it's like I wanted all of the wolves that would come um, to know that they were outnumbered and that this was a show that's airing on positivity, celebratory, um, you know, and anyone with that kind of aggressive vibe that the host was encouraging aggression back. And so some ways it was like mitigating the force. And I'm certainly not a violent person or anything like that, but it's, it's just one, it's like a bizarre gutter way of managing the... <laughs> The crazy kindergarten class. Well, and that's of, the preacher vibes right there. Yeah, know? yeah, it's some degree. I mean, yeah. it's yeah, yeah, absolutely is. And I was going to say, apart from the part where you maybe are are, are saying be a little violent, mm -hmm. uh, it's very Christ-like what you're asking for here. <laughs> How so? How so? <laughs> uh, acceptance of everybody, acceptance of all, uh, love, yeah, honor. 
I like to be a little Old Testament mixed with the new. You know well, I mean? the Old Testament <laughs> is the violent part. You're That's right. right. Yeah. It's, it's basically if you break this rule, hey, everybody, we're going to have an amazing time tonight. But if you touch a girl that you don't know, we're going to fuck you up and no one's going to help you. And we're all going to just let it happen and drag you out because this is not the fucking place. So I mean, that, that's literally what I say. I, because I want that person, that one guy that thinks they're going to get away with it to know that the, the main dude, I see you. If you're thinking on that, it's going to get handled and going to handle quickly. And it, it really does help. It's like this yeah. bizarre preventative measure. But sometimes it just needs to be said you know it's exciting to have someone on who creates mm. such a variety of things including hosting the show i don't even mm. really know that we went into that in the intro Tourette's without regrets has been a a jumping point for so much of your stuff i feel like right but i was saying this to you before it's the like sh- a playground for maniacs exactly it feels like i was saying this clubhouse to you. for carnage exactly i was saying this to you before the show but sometimes we have artists on and it it's difficult for them to get in touch with where the stuff comes from. But with you, you you're so generous about everything in your life through your art, whether mm. it's the poetry, whether it's the filmmaking, whether mm. it's the onstage stuff. And uh, you mentioned Scientology earlier. Right. And I think it's good to go into that family relationship for a bit because I think the chance circumstance... Here we go, kids. I know, I know. Everybody <laughs> asks you about it. It's like the big thing. But I do think that the chance circumstance of being familially related to that religion yeah. has been a huge defining one as far as like where your life would go. Absolutely is absolutely been defining for me. And sometimes what some of my kind of implicit fr- frustration with some people who ask me the questions about Scientology is, is I mock it sometimes in terms of, Oh, this is the, you were born question part of the show, right? Where they're like, what was it like to be born? You know, you were just randomly born and you were born to this random, what's that like, you know? And I'll explain what that's like and why that's integral, but it's more of a point of trivia to them and they're not really paying attention. And also because they haven't been to my shows, you know what I mean? They've read about them. But I mean, if, if anyone who's been to a, lot, a regular Tourette's Without Regrets can see that was a conscious choice. And a lot of that was, was when it started, when Tourette's Without Regrets started. And that was also when I was really digging deeply into my family history and Scientology, which much of which had been kept from me most of my entire childhood. So it's, it's also that, I mean, it's not only just Scientology, like I'm also descended of pirates. You know, I'm a direct descendant of Captain Blood, um, who is a Scottish pockmarked fucking fine pirate that uh, Errol Flynn played and was way more handsome than the real guy, I'm sure. That's also where my red hair comes from. And so, I mean, I, mean, I feel like I'm from a long line of like roguish con man, pockmarked, beak-nosed, fucks you know and i think that (laughs) a lot of a lot of our sort of x-men skill is our tongue because it sure as hell is not my sweet brad pitt looks if you're listening to this on itunes i basically look like a pumpkin that's been carved out with no lips and beady rap reptilian rat eyes and that uh so a lot of it has been our hustle as a ginger i believe is to talk you know what i mean and to to you hide in a cave all day because otherwise you're going to get a sunburn and die and then you creep out at night and then you got your hustle on and so i, I believe in some respects i come from a lineage of hustlers and con men and elron Really is, is your great grandfather? Is my great grandfather? My grandfather was Elron Hubbard Jr., and that's where I got my red hair. And so that that's on my mother's side. So I mean, just the quick thing is Elron Hubbard is great grandfather. Elron Hubbard Jr. 
my grandfather, his first child was my mom, and then I was her first child. And so I was the first of all my cousins. Um, and I was the first one that was started asking questions. And I was also a little writer kid. So all of my uncles were very encouraging towards that. And Elron Jr. was also encouraging towards that. And I read Elron Hubbard as a kid. And that was enormously inspiring to me that here was this swashbuckling sci-fi writer that I could find in every bookstore. And I was like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to do things like, you know I mean? I'm going to write that. I mean, all the books looked amazing. I mean, it was like guys with alien machine guns on standing on burning cars and spaceships collapse. I was like, yes, you know? And I mean, I was like six years old, eight years old. And, but it was very lonely because I try to write him letters. I try to get, get advice from him and I had no idea the true story of what was happening that he was an outlaw on the run and he was in hiding that my grandfather who was sick at that time was actually actively at war with his father and they'd been hunted for years and there's lawsuits and death threats and you know guns and photographs and blackmail and extortion and just just this whole legacy of violence and madness that had gone on for, you know, decades. And nobody wanted to tell me that. You know what I mean? They were like, you want to talk about Elron Ron Hubbard with my aunts and uncles? They're like, oh, let's give him a sci-fi book. But I didn't even hear the word Scientology for years. I didn't hear it until Elron died. And that was the same day that the Challenger space shuttle exploded. exploded. And I remember that we had, <laughs> had current events in my... It was like my third grade class and everybody did the Challenger space shuttle. And I did my current event was that L Ron Hubbard because <laughs> that was a, that was in headlines. I was very excited. And before that I was normally just always bringing articles about the latest murder by Richard Ramirez, a night stalker. I was a creepy kid even then. And so that would, but at Scientology, that was when I was able to find a start kind of reading about it in these newspapers and understanding that there was this whole kind of, wolf hiding behind the door that nobody was telling me about and i realized later that was because they were trying to protect us um but there was also a certain level of 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 fear um and also there was a lot of just like let's let sleeping beasts lie you know and that nobody wanted to they, they felt in some respects that they had spent their whole life trying to escape and that with Elrond's death and their grandfather's, their father's death, which is shortly after that, that that chapter was closed. And when I really started writing hard as a performer, um, when I was 20, 21, and, and started as a performance poet and was really just blasting out at open mics everywhere, um, I started asking a lot of those questions, which I've been asking kind of in my teenage years and would get sort of cryptic answers from certain family members who would talk to me. Some of them wouldn't talk about it at all. They say, uh, maybe when you're older, you know, when I hit the point, I was like, all right, I'm older. What's up? You know what I mean? Where, what happened? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm starting to read the books and I'm like really diving into the research. And then I was learning information that wasn't in those books, you know, that was dirty, dark, you know, very, very horrific um about also a lot of what my grandfather had done um because Elron jr was basically his his father's first enforcer so he did a lot of dirty shit you know what i mean he, he was like his dad's muscle and he admits that and he 
you know, I mean, he left behind a memoir and that's that I've found years later. But I mean, he documents all that. And so, I mean, there's a certain level in the family that it's almost like being related. I mean, in some ways to really understand is like, imagine that, you know, Elrond was like a mafia boss and his like son, he trained in the same school and then his son left, you know, after committing many, many crimes and tried to turn his life around, never quite successfully had a new life was still like under that shadow because he was at war with his father for all of it and so to me the real huge distinction is i knew when i started Tourette's without regrets and i know how fucking (laughs) fucking weird this sounds to normie peoples but uh uh and i know it sounds megalomaniac and that's fucking fine bring it on but come to one of my shows first before you judge me is that i knew when i started doing shows and putting them on myself that I could, I under started really quickly understand sort of cult mechanics, um, that kind of preachery, I don't know, what, whatever it was. I also noticed that nobody else was doing what I was doing. Um, even when I started the show, I had never been to a variety show. I didn't even want to start and uh, I didn't even want to MC it. And I couldn't find anybody else to MC it. So I started this thing and I was terrible by all accounts. Uh, <laughs> it's absolutely wretched. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just flailing in the dark. Um, but I started to notice like different kind of mechanics on like how crowds work, you know, when you have a microphone and 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 sort of organizing things and, and the way that you can you know get an audience to do things and and whatever and contests and interactive elements and and that sort of thing and how that there is a certain aspect of like follow the leader and i don't think it's because i'm a natural leader at all i think it's just that most people don't want to lead most people don't want to put on a show they don't want to do the work they don't want to do any of that and you kind of have to be half fucking crazy to do it um but to me it felt like sort of a natural element but i started to see the dark side of it (laughs) which i'll just leave it that um of you know the sex of the drugs and the whatnot and i was like you know okay i can't i feel like i i understand in some implicit way that i can't even quite verbalize this is then um what those tactics are but i'm not going to use them for that purpose you know and I want to, how can I, I do this in an honest way? And it really changed a lot of my personality. Um, it changed a lot of my writing. Um, it changed really also the way that I deal with people, um, is I try to never be fictitious. You know, my biography is not fictitious. I refuse to lie in most instances that I can. Um, I so certainly lie about are sex. Are most of your monologues? Or <laughs> certainly lie about drugs and sex. <laughs> are most of your monologues uh, pretty much autobiographical? Yeah, almost 100%. The story I mean, about uh, the church camp? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that The story. Salvation Apocalypse yeah, Camp. Uh, spectacular. Uh, Salvation Summer Camp. Yeah, that's... I mean, obviously, as a writer, that there, there's sometimes you have to modify details um, just yeah. for cohesion because it gets too fucking confusing. You're like, oh, well, is it, it was a friend of this girl who has told this person who then told them that, you know, it's just like, just cut to the chase. Um, but the essence of it are, are pretty much all accurate. But, I mean, Elrond, his entire hustle 
was a fictitious biography. He was like, I was a war hero, so therefore I understand how the military works. I was a nuclear physicist, therefore I understand how science works. I was, uh, uh, I did all these world travels and I, I traveled at the feet of, of mystics and in the far east. And so I understand all these, you know, hiding his true is like I used to be very heavy into black sex magic and hypnosis and you know I've been a fraud for years and have been an amazing con man you know I mean those are more essential and so I think it's it really changed me into have kind of a very almost um, brutally upfront and kind of blunt and caustic style um, because I just I really never wanted to be accused of being like that motherfucker you know what i mean and i was like i hope on my deathbed that that no one's gonna call me like that guy was fake you know i mean they're gonna say a lot of shit about me sure like you know he's a fucking asshole and whatever but i mean like i hope that no one is like that guy was fake as fuck i've met so many fake as fuck performers and i fucking loathe them on site you know i mean my favorite is like just be real you know and those are those are the people that i run with who are uncomfortably real (laughs) <laughs> does part of you admire the con man element of Elron? I mean, Elron would have been an amazing dinner guest. I could probably stand him, I'm sure, for about an hour with all my bullshit meters just banging away. Yeah. You know, and I'd, I'd probably ask him, like, let me, hear that, let me hear that story one more time about your sweet submarine battle. Can I hear that story one more time? You were the, like the first guy wounded, you know what I mean, in, in World War II or whatever World War is. And can I see those scars and then hear all the reasons why I can't see those scars because they don't fucking exist. You know what I mean? Like, Do a little interview with him. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, tell all me the that time you went in the Congo and just like, you know, take notes and be like, wow, you were like 90 years old according to your stories, you know. And I mean, I, I, I admire his hustle. I admire his charisma um i'm sure that he would annoy the fuck out of me at some point in real life um that uh i absolutely admire the fact that he smashed his will onto the world exactly as he said he was going to in his journal and also i admire that he took fucking really evil shit like he took the mechanics of black magic which I know sounds ridiculous to many people, but that's literally what he was studying in. He was studying black magic, black sex magic, and he was literally trying to open doors to demonic forces to create power that he would be a conduit through and that that using women as a conduit and abusing these women in sadomasochistic rituals so that they would become a conduit, I'm sorry, so they would become a conduit and that power would course into him and make him into a god, right? And so he'd been doing this for years and then he realized that he could still do that but sell you the idea that he was going to make you a god while making you a conduit for him (laughs) and for you to give all your money to him while he's selling you, I'm going to make you a god while he's just making himself rich and just fucking sucking your life force and just being a parasite and in some ways it's it's kind of like admiring uh uh, i don't know like fuck like you know john dillinger of like you know wow like you audacious motherfucker you know you made a gun out of soap you know what i mean and like elrond's like you made a 
a temple out of straight bullshit, you know, but it was even more evil bullshit than people even understand. And that's something that I think still needs to get exposed. I mean, I variate, you know what I mean? Like there's certain days where he's kind of a charming roguish thing for like one minute, but the amount of families that I've seen destroyed utterly by it. I mean, he, he really is on a level of Hitler or Ted Bundy. He destroyed way more lives than most serial killers. And he continues to, and he continued to do that. Guy never apologized. He never backtracked. He never revealed, he never had a come to God moment or whatever. I mean, like they never broke him. And also he got away with all of it. He never went to jail. He died rich and he died leaving an entire empire of fanatics who still literally fight to this day that might've followed me here and have your license plate in their phone. You know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, he was one of the most destructive forces in the last century. And most cults die when that guy dies. And the fact that they continue in his name is a testament to how Machiavellian and how brutally and brilliantly engineered this entire machine that he made to basically just grind people up you know, for money and for control. And there's really nothing admirable about that. You know, I mean, so much of my life and all of this shit that I do, honestly, is is almost a reaction to Elron. You know what I mean? And not being Elron. And so that's why I think it's frustrating when people ask me about it. It's like they don't, it's almost like they don't do their homework because they're just like, oh, isn't it crazy to be related to Elron and you talk about him? But I'm just like, it's hard to explain this that he was like one of my first childhood heroes and that everything in my life, you know, is that I'm going to go in and teach to kids in a prison, you know, in juvie and go to high schools is I'm trying to give them their own voice. I'm not there to like control them and teach them the right like me. You know, I'm there to your voice is important. Focus on that. You know what I mean? What kind of voice I can show you examples of voices, but not me. You know what I mean? Elron would be up there fucking talking about his ass, trying to get everybody to write like him and he try to sell every kid a book. You know what I mean? And so there's a, there's a big difference of you know, empowering people on a real way, but to empower people is, it's about honestly them and their voice. It's not about yours. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not Elron at the end of the day. And, and so everything from teaching to the shows that I do, um, I'm pushing it as I guess a, I don't know, a producer or point person or pastor or whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? But it, it's like, it ain't about me. You know what I mean? It's about everybody in that room. And that's a huge difference. Huge. And that's why I bring it up. Jesus it, Christ. I went just, off on a no, fucking no, no. tangent. I'm I, sorry. I, I'm thrilled with that because it, it's, <laughs> sorry. it does feel like all of your work, and we're going to talk a lot about it tonight, is, sure. is, is, a, is an internal uh, just like reflex to just be like, no, I will mm. not be defined by this guy. And in fact, I find him repellent. Mm. And in fact, I can be the opposite, which is exactly what you just said. So mm. I'm thrilled that we got there uh, mm. four questions before I got to the prompt. Ah. I, I do, But it's also fascinating on another level. I mean, you going to the bookstore and you seeing that he's just an author before mm. you even knew what his legacy mm. was. The fact well, yeah, that was, he was an author was inspiring. What was you. crazy is that my one of my favorite great aunts, my, my aunt Katie, who was the daughter of Elrond, and that I loved her because she was such a 
bookworm, you know, and I was just a, I still am a maniac, you know, at books, like Jesus Christ, I have like books just stacked in my house. I just churn through them. I'm always reading, always consuming books. And so when I was a kid, I was the same way. And I was kind of a weird loner in that way that my brother would be out running amok with like, you know, his gang of whatever playground kids. And I'd be so content to be eating crackers and cheese and just like sitting by my bookshelf. My mom would be like, you need to go get some sun, you know? And, and my, my great aunt, she would take me to these bookstores and she was just like my, you know, favorite, you know, she'd be like, here's $40. And it'd be like, wow. And I'd buy like, you know, 90 books. And she was very comfortable talking about Elrond um, and encouraging me to write and encouraging me to read. She likes science fiction as well and fantasy, and so she's very encouraging in that realm. And it took me years before I really knew her true story, you know, and, and knew that she had really loved her father and had been so ostracized, you know, and so just, just so destroyed you know but i mean like what scientology did and when when they when he died they like came and they had all this legal shit and they like took all of her photographs and books and letters i mean they're, they're just fucking vultures you know what i mean and so yeah i just i loved her so dearly and and she i remember was really one that would was very open to talking about him but she still didn't talk about scientology i think that they really viewed it as that it's something that you need to kind of learn about on your own. And I think that they're worried that if I would hear about it at a young age, that it would have been a nightmare for any one of them for us to start to slowly go towards that grass. I mean, because Scientology is designed to just, you know, suck you in. It's a black hole. And so I think that they were really, really wary and also, in some ways, I feel like I was the first experiment. <laughs> I was the first kid, and I'm like, what the fuck are we going to do here? You know what I mean? Like, we're on the run from this cult. You know what I mean? We're starting to have kids now. Uh, what do we do? You know, we have another redhead, you know, <laughs> two generations of redhead wants to be a writer. He's asking about this guy, you know? What are we going to say? And it would not surprise me if, the you know, the aunts and uncles are like, all right, what is our plan here? You know? And they're just like... Uh, let's just kick it down the road for a while and, you know, see what happens. You've said that when you were young, you'd get sent to the psychiatrist at school because of some of the things you were writing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, God, as long as I can remember. So what sort of things was a young <laughs> Jamie DeWolf writing that was getting well, him in such trouble? I thought they were fucking clever for the record. And also it's just because I, I did really well at English and writing and create, creative writing. And I would win a fair amount of, of awards when I was like a second grade and third grade. And I'd like win some creativity award. And my teacher would take me to this, you know, cool, uh, writing camp and things like that. And so I just had a very instinctive sense when I was young that the writing was like a easier thing for me than most and whatever. And I mean, I just, I just did it naturally and I, I really loved it, but I would also get really bored with rather regular assignments and so we were, like, I remember one is that we were asked to write about a class field trip um, that we had taken. And, you know, it was supposed to be like a one-page sweet little, that was, the, as far as I remember, that was the writing prompt. But I was like, oh, okay. So it's a, a class field trip to 
the Sweet Science Museum on the day that the mental hospital has exploded and patients attack the school bus and students named by name die and their jaws and you know and I would turn it in and I would just be like I'm spicing it up you know what I mean I'm <laughs> I'm just adding a little bit of luster you know it's like it's too bland what do you want you would just go and we land at the science museum and then we look at fossils no it's like who survives you know to the end and then you know and i, I remember there was another <laughs> this one in particular i got sent to the psych a new psychiatrist <laughs> that uh we were supposed to write about the signing of the declaration of independence because it was a convergence of a history and an english class and that was, as far as I remember, is like right about the signing. And so I was like, everybody knows what happens. You know, the teachers know what happens. We have like, you know, paintings of what happens. But I was like, but what if? And so I wrote this whole story that I called Time Kill that I made a whole cover of, of a guy in a fedora lightning flashing behind him. And it was, a, <laughs> it was a mad scientist who wanted to bring about the apocalypse. So he sent back an assassin to subvert the history of America, to go back with a silencer and an axe and systematically pick off every single member <laughs> of those who signed the Declaration of Independence. And so, like, George Washington gets it with an axe and, you know, uh, Jefferson gets gets shot with a silencer and dies in the snow. And I was so excited about this story. And, I mean, it was like these things I would read, too. I was, like, really into comics and fiction. And so I didn't understand why it was so horrifying to people because I was like, yeah, it's violent, but, like, geez, everything's violent, you know? It was fun. And I was like, I was coming from like Christian camps where it was just everything was apocalypse all the time. It was oh, yeah. all about raining blood and seas yeah. of blood. And coming back from an from an adventure with Exodus, right? One would think that <laughs> right that fits right in. Well, I was real real obsessed with Revelations and with the Old Testament, and that was fine when I was in school. And then I would draw pictures all the time of Jesus getting crucified because it just fuck, how many times they showed us that when I was a kid. And that was fine for years. I would I would have like a math test and I'd be like drawing like Jesus, like pouring blood like through the fractions. But because it's Christianity, they'd be like, all right, it's, it's a little much, you know, but the teacher would just be like, just can you draw that like not on your quizzes? And I was, you know, and all this. And I would read those little, uh, uh, these Christian tracts, I forget what they're called. And I would pass them out also, but they're all about, everyone, you know, you die in the beginning of the comic and that it's all about your life flashing and you burning and writhing in hell until you changed your, you know, your life course. And so to me, like violence and, and kind of macabre imagery was very woven into my whole sort of symbology, theology, demonology. And so when I was writing these stories, um, like Time Kill, my sweet epic in sixth grade, Time Kill, uh, they were like, this is, this is insane. You need to go to the psychiatrist. And they sent me to the, the school shrink. And I remember I was so, just so frustrated because he was like, why, what is this, all this murder? You know what I mean? I was like, I'm trying to just do something different. You know what I mean? I was like, he has a time machine. He kills all of them. And then like, he goes back to the future and then America's completely subverted. It's a robotic apocalyptic wasteland. And there's like a huge robot with a cannon for an arm. And it ends with this like atomic bomb explosion. I was like, how is that not awesome? You know? And he was like, it's just supposed to, I was like, but we all know what happens. Uh, you know, we had this whole argument about creativity and he was like, well, nothing 
There's nothing new under the sun. And I remember that comment so bitterly. And I was like, I will fucking prove you wrong. You know what I mean? I will, I will spend my life. <laughs> you know, that, that, that the, the themes will always be the same, but I mean, like, you know, it's all about what's current, you know, nothing new under the sun. That was, that, that was, was his pushback. That was his psychiatrist. And then he was, uh, my mom then started banning me from reading Stephen King. And I had a copy of the stand, which is hilariously very based on the Bible, you know, as an apocalyptic, good, you know, demonic force, antichrist and, and Christ-like figure. And she wouldn't let me read it. And an uncle still slipped it to me. And I literally- Long book, by the way. Yeah, so yeah. long. And so I hid it in the basement of my house that I had to remove like a little latch and like crawl under the crawl space and read this stand like with the spiders and the ants. And so like when my mom would go to get groceries, I would run down to the basement like it was porn and be like churning through the stand, you know what I mean? And like fear, like looking down the street for when her car would come back. And yeah, so that, that was the kind of convergence. I mean, and I kept getting in trouble. I got in trouble, I think, uh, I guess forever. Um, I guess like it was the, the only time that, that I stopped getting in trouble, I think was when I got in, involved in poetry slams because they wouldn't kick me out. Um, they would just give me low scores and hope that I didn't come back. Um, and so before that, I was getting actively kicked out of open mics. I was getting, I got kicked out of Christian school. I uh, basically got kicked out of high school. <laughs> and it was primarily all for my writing. So the problem is that it, it created this huge golem on my shoulder of just like the biggest chip of, of anger and defiance. And then it stopped going from fiction into kind of vicious autobiography. And I remember one of the most uh, repellent moments was I was in a creative writing class with a girl named Susan, who I have a piece about on my CD called Strict Nine Valentine that starts with Susan. That was a real name. Um, fuck it, that was a real name. And we were in this class together and she very quickly descended into crystal meth and heroin addiction. Um, she ended up dropping out of class and, and because she started to OD. And it was the first time I'd ever done any hardcore drugs like that. And I was writing poems about that experience, um, about being in love with someone that is is really just spiraling towards death and, and really trying to drag you with them. And I remember my creative writing teacher, this is in community college, but I was very young because I've been basically got out of high school, took a proficiency and just was like the youngest kid in, in this college classes um, and was writing these pieces about you know, drugs and, and this sort of malignant death wish. And I remember the teacher writing on the thing. I was like, so she wants to die and the flowers still grow and I stand outside your piece with my hands on my hips waiting for you to write more positive material. And I'm clearly quoting because I remembered it that vividly. It just made me so angry that just this, this idea that certain work of positive or negative, what's violent or macabre to you, and, and uh, is offensive and like, what is offensive? You know what I mean? And, and 
that really causes tumultuous, really just kind of unending yell of screaming defiance that it took me years to kind of shake off a little bit. But I mean, I'd be, I was like wrestling with Christianity, wrestling with these ideas of what is obscenity. And as a young writer, the idea of, of what was obscene was so based in Christianity that to me it all felt um, like the whole system needed to be burnt down. You know, I mean, you think of our our cuss words, you know, I mean, they're all Christian based, you know what I mean? They're all they're all revulsion of the body and revulsion of sex, you know, and and for any Christian to act like the Bible is not one of the most ultra violent Tarantino esque books on the planet. I mean, it's like insane. Like if you read like you read it, I would always ask Christians they're like, well, you read the Bible. And I'm like, I the reason why I'm not a Christian is because I actually read it. I read all of it. It's profoundly homophobic, violent as fuck, so misogynistic. You know, what I mean, the Old Testament is vicious. The Old Testament God is just like, I'm coming, and if you don't smear blood on your doorstop, I'm gonna fucking smack. You know, what I mean, it's just like he's like fucking Kaiser Soze. You know, what I mean, it's just madness. And so that just left me with such rage. Um, that was also just sort of corrosive and a lot of Tourette's without regrets that name people like, where did you get such an offensive name? It was really came from that. It was this whole, whole sort of like profound middle finger. And, you know, I know the name is offensive. Um, <laughs> it has not aged well. Um, and I know that I'm aware we've had many performers with Tourette's at our show. Have they um, taken offense? No, they think it's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, those performers have. I'm sure there are others that find it offensive. Um, yeah. I find it to be kind of like, it's sort of a, a sense of humor question um, in, in, our, in our more evolving sort of hypersensitive day that it's, it's, there's a sense of appropriation, which I understand and I get that. Um, and when I do different shows, I don't really use the term. It's just like locally. Every If I change the name of it, everybody would call it that anyways. Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the rules of the show is be offended. You know, one of the rules that we say in the show is be offended. The sign goes up and it's because I want you to be offended because what millennials, I would hope, learn is that to be offended is a start of a conversation, not the end of it. That's what we say in the rule. And that's true. People are like, I'm offended. They're like, so? And dot, dot, dot. Why are you offended? Let's talk about that and be like, you said bad words. Why are they bad? You know what I mean? What is bad about what I said? What is bad? Is sex bad? Are nipples bad? Is fucking a mother bad? Is shit bad? Is, you know what I mean? Like collateral damage to me should be an obscenity. You know what I mean? Um, post-traumatic stress disorder. That should be an obscenity. Like our obscenity is we, we hide the most violent words and disgusting and repellent words. We hide those by just by adding syllables and everything else. And um, vulgarity to me is is really just being direct. You know what I mean? And, and that's how every politician talks when the mics are off. So, so I mean, it's just like that's- No, when the mics are on, it's when they're being the most vulgar. Yeah, sometimes. that's real talk. That's absolutely it's the the, the non truths and, and the manipulation and that's vulgar mm. and the lies. I should probably let you some 
ask some questions instead of just dominant just no, no. running um, my no, fucking mouth. Great. Also, Tom Gaffey, <laughs> so Tom, Tom Gaffey, a man with Tourette's. Yeah, that's true. You is that right? You're yeah. fine with the name. Yeah, I am. Yeah, well, well, I mean, that's that's the you are the audience. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> do we I, get a blue ribbon? We I get, get a, it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> if that if that would help. The only follow-up question I have on that is you, you've you written that uh, as a child you read the book of Revelation maybe 10,000 times. Oh, God, so and, many. And I'm curious, like, what would possess <laughs> so, a, a young man so. to read that so many times? Because obviously, you know, the violence of, of that book and, and the Bible in general, as you got older, you were very turned off by that. But as a young man, did you kind of like that element? Well, it, no, it was it was the, always that they were hammering into us is the apocalypse is coming. It's like tomorrow, you know. I mean, I vividly remember I was—I must have been in like the second grade where we had this long class where our, our teacher sat us kids down and hushed, and and they were like, you know, so you guys know what credit cards are, and we're like, it's the thing that mommy buys the, and they're like, they're working on a new credit card, and it's going to be this big supercomputer, and people are going to get tattoos and microchips under their skin. And then it's going to beep and it's going to be in their hand and then in their foreheads. And like, do you know what that big supercomputer is called? It's going to be called the beast because everyone's going to have the mark of the. So, I mean, there's this constant there's this constant denial that makes me sick coming from a family that invented a cult. Christianity is an apocalyptic cult. And feel free to quote me. Let's fight on Twitter, whatever. Um what's the difference between a cult and religion just because you accept it more but i mean the bible does not have a happy ending it ends antichrist rising to power jesus christ marches down he he i mean he flies down sword coming out of his mouth the field of armageddon is a real field my grandmother picked a flower from that field pressed it into her bible and she showed it to me i never forgot that day it haunted my dreams i was like this shit is real and so they're constantly hammering into you it's real and so that means one that this earth is a rehearsal it's not real fuck the environment fuck you know the oceans the oil the whatever i mean that's the theology is based on that because it all comes down to this war and it's only black and white it's only good evil there's no gray shades you are picking a side that is it and the rapture which is an invention of this last century it's not really in the bible I've read it, trust me, is that, uh, is that the rapture basically almost even gives the Christians a VIP pass and they're out, and then, but it ends with war, with blood shed. And all of this theology is, is, is becoming self-actualizing because we don't want to admit that it's real. I mean, it's like if all of your politicians are subscribing to this theology, um, that is, is, to me, is dangerous is absolutely dangerous if you believe that the end of human history ends in a massive war in the Middle East on the field of Armageddon. You know what I mean? It's like it becomes a, a, you know, a self-actualizing prophecy. You're going to manifest it into reality. And so to me, that that is profoundly disturbing. And it's just... Anyways, as a kid, that just they pounded that into us. You have to save everybody because they're going to burn in hell. I would cry in my playground and look around at my playmates, be like, are you Christian? And they'd say no. And I would start crying because I, I really liked playing Tonka trucks with you, but you're going to writhe in hell for eternity unless I can save you today yeah. before cheese and crackers time. You know what I mean? So it, it just, the revelations was, it's, it's the end of the book. It's the whole plot, right? Like where, 
It's like Game of Thrones. You're like, what is the point of all, you know, I mean, where is this all going? Because that defines the tone of the show, the, the moral. And the moral is that humanity is ultimately doomed, right? And that only God can save us. And it's that only your decisions on this board game are the only ones that matter. And that, that um, the only matter in terms of, of getting you to the real life, which is death, right? That, that everything you do in this life only matters when you die and that death is more important than life. And anyways, this stuff has made me like livid mad for friggin' years. And, um, yeah, everybody loves me to smash on Scientology and I bring up Christianity and people get real skittish when that happens. And they're like, well, you know, and I'm like, no, let's talk about it. You know, like, why can't we, we're enacting cannibalistic rites where I, I, when I was a kid, I drank blood and ate flesh of our God every Sunday for fucking years. And that was absolutely normalized. And there's no hiding what they're not hiding that it's not metaphorical. They're like, this is literally blood and flesh. And anyways, I digress. No, you don't. Uh, the thing is, that, <laughs> some of this uh, stuff is I just I just give up hope. Um, some years, and I'm like, you know what? Uh, you asked me, and it'll cause me to go in that same like frothing, like, can't you see? Can't you see? And then I just I calm down, and I'm, then I go back to my like, you know. But fuck it, fuck it, fuck him. Let's make art. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, so you've got on on one side, you've got Scientology, who is affecting a much smaller group of people. Then Christianity, uh, Islam, um, uh, the Jews. Uh, you have all the children of Abraham about to blow this planet up. Right. And uh, holy shit, it needs to be mentioned. Right. <laughs> no, it really does. Right. I think this is this is your, your better battlefield. It, it's just a matter of, like, I ask people, like, how would you feel if there was, if your mayor was a Scientologist? Right. How would you feel if the president was a Scientologist? They felt like that when Kennedy got elected. You know what I mean? Like you, your true allegiance is to the Pope. You know what I mean? And and it, yeah, it gets real dicey in religion because everybody wants to act like it's a protected subject. We can't. You are. Oh, you can't. You can't insult. You, you can't. I'm like, why? Why not? Like you've been killing people for fucking years. You're one of the most dominant forces on the planet. We can't talk about it because when I was in Sunday school, that was what led me out of it. I was like, let's talk about this. You know what I mean? You're telling me this. And I was asking as a Christian, you know what I mean? And, and so, and they're going to smash on Satan, Satan, Satanism, you know what I mean? And smash on Scientology and smash on everything else. But if you don't have any sort of inward mirror, you know what I mean? That's, that's dangerous. And I mean, I'm okay Obviously, you know, I mean, people can believe what they want to believe, but if you're running shit, you know what I mean? Then you should get questioned. You know what I mean? That's just a fair, fair question. You know what I mean? It's like, what is the ending of this whole game plan here? Like what happens in the end of your theology? You know, Scientology's their end game plan is that they need to clear the earth. You know what I mean? So that means if you really boil it down is that everybody on this planet must become a Scientologist or the whole planet will be destroyed, you know? And that's where that fanaticism comes from. And I'm just, yeah, I, I, uh, clearly have, I clearly got some problems with religion. So sorry. You, uh, you, you, you hit that little live wire in my yeah, head. It's well made, founded. Me, no, this made is me why, nuts for years. I mean, we're here to find out what drives you and the things you make. And uh, <laughs> it certainly this drives cer- me. This certainly is. It one certainly of them. drives me, and it's, it's also where it's just like, yeah, I'm I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna fiddle like a fucking champ 
while this planet burns. You know what I mean? And in the meantime, I'm going to make as many churches as I can that celebrate talent and skill and individuality and sexuality and and being queer and weird and freaky and as big and as bad as you want to be. And that's that's what I'm dedicating my life to. And I think anybody who comes to my shows, and I've just done four of them in the last two weeks. And, you know, I mean, we have break dancers and pop lockers and aerialists and 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 sword swallowers and and sideshow folks who are stapling shit to their flesh and all poets celebrating and life they're all i mean they're all celebrating their stories and yeah. their individual perspective and also kicking the piss out of shit and talking shit and making jokes and you know just fucking throwing grenades at sacred cows you know what i mean and and all that and and just celebrating being human and the utter insanity and the hypocrisy that we live in. Um, you know what I mean? And, and having a damn great time doing it. That's, that's what I'm, I'm cool with. You know what I mean? And people sounds very evangelical. When you get right down. <laughs> I mean, but I'm all right with that, yeah. you know, because I spent every day of my life until maybe the age of 16, 16 years of my life for at least over a third of it now. I'm terrified of burning in hell and that all of my friends are going to burn in hell. My Jewish friends are going to burn in hell. Every Muslim kid I met on the playground burning in hell and the devil and his Machiavellian tactics. And um, I don't, I don't believe in hell. I believe that it's a controlling invention. I mean, if you read the old Testament kids, the hell isn't even in it. It's Sheol, by the way. Motherfuckers need to read. I'm just like so frustrated because you're like, well, hell in the Old Testament. I mean, like, have you read it? It's not in it. It's not in it. I've read it. It's called Sheol. It's like a fucking very gray ass limbo. And even the Catholic Church got rid of limbo, calling it a theological hypothesis uh, the last uh, 15 years. So anyways, is that I lived all of my, those years haunted by it. That would affect every one of my decisions, affected my sexuality, affected my individuality, affected my morality. It affected um, what I thought was possible with life and expressing yourself. And I mean, it, it tortured me. I mean, when I left Christianity, that was it was like I was almost like excommunicating myself. And I lost, you know, family members would would, you know, we severed our relationship and I've gone on in, in the years and and done all this. I mean, there's still relatives that were like, we're just not going to talk about religion, you know? Right. And so, and and it's just, it's hard to explain to people, like, coming from a family that invented a religion, paid the price for inventing that, um, ran from it, and then to save us from the religion we created, I mean, put us in another dominant religion um that feels safer to people but its theology is is just as controlling it's just that they it's so diffusive because it's through all of society that people don't notice as many of the cult mechanics of it and uh i know unpopular topic america but just fucking saying well, I think without this fire, you wouldn't be the artist that you are. And again, yeah, that's the whole point of, yeah. of what we're I have doing. Lots here. of anger problems. Lots of, uh, lots of but anger. you know, it, it's good because it helps you make the stuff, <laughs> and that's why we're here. You, uh, speaking of Scientology, you appeared in the Going Clear documentary, which was about that. Uh, no, I did a conference. Um, I actually ended up finding out. 
And up finding years later, I found a email from Lawrence Wright in my bulk mail folder of my email saying, I am writing this book called Going Clear. If you, I mean, he didn't say the title of it, but if he's like, I'm writing this book, I'd like to talk to you. And I was like, how the fuck did I miss a chance to talk to Lawrence Wright, a Pulitzer Prize winner? Jesus. Um, but you have done a number of media appearances. A number, a number, yes, and, ab- and, absolutely. And I bring it up because you've—I've heard that you've had pushback and specifically threats. Is that true? Oh Jesus Christ! They've stalked me openly. Yeah, they stalked me openly. I've had vans following me, multiple surveillance teams on me. Uh, I mean, God knows what the fuck else they have done. They—they they act in two ways. They have one—they have sort of what they call black ops, where they're basically shadowing you and they're trying to intimidate you in a subtle way and then they also have uh, what they call noisy campaigns where they're just straight up in your face and just trying to intimidate you on a constant level um to be fair i think that i've I, i've absolutely been stuck for years uh all, <laughs> yeah, and it's not fun it's not fun there is no sweet jason Bourne spy on spy action that's not what it feels like um, they send people to talk to you in bars. They bribe some person that seems friendly to you and have conversations and even uh, against Scientology, you know what I mean? And that person is actually really gathering information on you. Um, they sent PIs to one of my ex-girlfriend's house with a whole fucking cover story and that they were representing parents of a child I was working on. Just such a fucking dirty ass fucking scumbag thing to do and so my ex who's a teacher she teaches uh she teaches with developing disabled children and so she was really trying to help she was like trying to be supportive and so she was like someone came by and they're you know they they i guess they're representing a parent of a child you're working with and they seem to have like a lot of concerns about you and you know they kept asking me like you know these kind of questions i was like no he's not that kind of guy at all they're like you know they'd be like well we we know that he owns weapons. What kind of weapons does he own? And she's like, he doesn't know. He doesn't have, you know what I mean? And like, well, we know he makes pornography. Is he still making pornography? You know what I mean? Like all these leading to scumbag questions. And he like sat in her kitchen. I mean, just, just shit like that. You know what I mean? They are despicable cowards. They are cowards. They've never walked up to me on the street I've never had a conversation dead on face-to-face with any Scientologist um, other than when I've gone to their own facilities. Um, Their PIs will never just come up and, and, you know what I mean? Like, they'll never confront you. So they slink in the shadows like fucking Gollum, and they're snakes. And that's partly because they operate with this handbook of surveillance and blackmail and coercion and intimidation. You know, and so that's that's usually step one um, if they can try to silence you. And that's why I've, I've just been as loud as possible. I'm just like, I don't fucking care if you have a picture of me doing cocaine off a Nine Inch Nails CD cover in 2004. Does or, that exist? No, I don't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It'd be great if you no, had that, that <laughs> level of knowledge on the opposition research. No, you're like, that's oddly specific. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just whatever. I'm just saying that they're like, you know, they're like, what are you, here's, here's you cheating on your girlfriend in 1998, you know, in a picture to whatever. I mean, I'd just be like, yeah, but I don't run a cult, so fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm still going to be middle fingers up to them all day because they're they're not 
they're not legitimate. They're not a legitimate religion. They didn't start as a religion. They're an absolute criminal enterprise, a fucking fraud. Everything is built on absolute lies. Elrond was a pathological liar. Everything at the top of it is fucking smoke and mirrors, is an illusion. And it destroys people. It destroys them. It guts them. It bleaches them of their will, of money. It wrecks families and fuck them. You know what I mean? Seems like 16 was a, a changing year for you when you became 16. Yeah, you left yeah, the abso- church and absolutely. all that. Tra- traumatic in so many, so many ways. I mean, it was the years I, I, I learned that I've been uh, molested um, by a guy in my church. Um, and that really threw me in terms of of trying to understand uh, my own sexuality and how that incorporated with Christianity and not knowing who to talk to about it. And, um, you know, that my mom had known that it had happened um, and was about to report this guy to the police. And then the police were basically like, what you know they're like if you do this you know what i mean we're gonna have to really push your kid you know what i mean in terms of what happened the details and all that and like do you want to do that and she saw that as long as i knew that i wasn't going back there i seemed fine and i was also at a young enough age that she kind of hoped that my cognizance of sexuality was so sort of abstract that I didn't know how bad it was. And so that she's like, maybe if I just don't push this, don't bring in the police officers, you know what I mean? That this will uh, go someplace else. And it was, you know, when I first started seeing a, a therapist, he was like, you, you exhibit symptoms of someone who's been sexually molested. I was like, I've, I was never molested. He was like, are you sure? Memory is a tricky thing. You know, and so then I asked my mom and then she got really quiet and then sort of told me this story. And so then that caused this whole um, kind of hurricane in my head of like, did I block this memory or did I never really remember it? Because as a kid, it was just like a bad day or two. And then, you know, when it stopped, I was like, whatever, you know, and, and, and moved on. Um, and, and also that at that age, I mean, nearly every, you know, girl I've, I've been friends with has been molested and, and raped in, in some way. And so um, that was a, a real, just a, a real war um, of conflict of, of, you know, within myself, with your own memory, with your own mind, with Christianity, you know what I mean? Like, all, all of, you know, as a guy from your church and feeling that like, because she was like, God will forgive him that he's let free and what if he continued you know those kind of actions and so all of that fuel and this is kids yeah i just feel like all all of this whole first chunk has all been <laughs> like the uh, the hellfire origin story and i should people are gonna be like this is, so how many people did this guy end up killing and i'm like no he became a he became a poet i don't think guy. you can fully appreciate your work without the backstory and i appreciate the generosity <laughs> honestly well i mean the, that incident you just discussed the you know traumatic incident mm. um you have a piece about that i do and yeah. also i i really think it is important to um and men in particular to talk about it without um hesitation you know what i mean and and so i 
I'm only pausing some because I'm just trying to articulate what it what the impact it was to me. But I mean, many folks, if I I talk it even just sort of very quickly, I was like, you know, I was molested as a kid, and it it absolutely, um, you know, informed and and really fucked up a lot of my sexuality as an adolescent for a while because men in particular need to be able to just talk about it because shame is actually the most corrosive um, thing that there is. I mean, shame causes you to loathe yourself, to internalize it, which then becomes rage, which can become, you know, just manifest in all of these disgusting, ugly ways. And men are the perpetuators of sexual violence, you know? And so, so many men have been molested um, as boys in all different kinds of ways, and it manifests because if they if they don't if they don't know how to process it or talk about it or share it with other men, you know, in a very even just matter of fact way, um, without it, like you know, guys challenging their sexuality with it, um, you know, I was molested by a man, and so that that was like a, you know, made me, you know, I'm getting called a faggot by every fucking jock asshole piece of shit in my high school. I was like, maybe they know something I don't, you know what I mean? And, and I even, you know, had, had gay experiences when I was, when I was young and to be like, I guess maybe I'll try this out. I was really hoping I was going to be like super bisexual because that would have made life easier. But it was just, you know, it's just, I wasn't, like, wasn't meant to be. I like vanilla, just not chocolate. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just like boring. I don't know. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, but I fucking gave it a shot. You know what I mean? Most, most don't even do that. You know, I'm like, how do you know? How do you really know? Have you tried it? You know, you got to try. Anyways, that, uh, I think that, you know, men in, 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 in particular needs to talk about those kind of experiences. And all of that stuff was like this kind of perfect storm. And it really all was really boiling in, in so many different ways in my life and was really boiling over in a lot of shock actions where I was just so crazy when I was young, just, just constantly trying to be outlandish, obscene. Like I was almost like I felt like I was just trying to challenge God to strike me down for years. And then I had my daughter and at the age of 21, this sort of whole kind of suicidal Molotov mix of like rage and spectacle and, and obscenity and everything else. And you know, that, that absolutely changed me as well. I mean, because then I, I was just so ferocious in trying to um, protect her and that within her, the first year of her life, there was a girl that was, um, you know, kidnapped and, and killed um, in our apartment complex. And so the subject of another one of your works, yeah, the girl in the hallway. And so that, that in particular, absolutely just, you know, it makes you just so protective of like, you know, I mean that, that, I mean, it's like, I had been a kid. It was like reading about evil and true crime and trying to understand evil. And, you know, it's, it's, it's to, it's, it's not in the newspaper. It's literally a girl you saw every day. And it, it just, all, all of those factors, um, the way that they combined, and I, I think that that whole era and then Scientology was stalking me um, when I started speaking out against them. And in some respects, I mean, like if, you know, someone's making a movie in my life, that whole era, like everything I've done since then is all motivated by those, that same engine, you know what I mean? So everything that I do is, is um, you know, art-wise is, is trying to, be as honest as possible, no matter how ugly it is, 
Um, and you or, had a writing instructor saying that he was waiting for you to be more positive. That's right. <laughs> well, again, if someone's a fan of Tourette's with our, without regrets or they're a fan of... It was of about her own student that had yeah. vanished. Honestly. And I even confronted the teacher. Yeah, and I was just like, you know that was one of your students and that's why she's not in this class. And she was like, a poem is a poem. So, <laughs> Well, again, like you are... The adult that you are is uh, informed by all these traumas. That I'm also in a clown collective, kids. I'm yeah. just like, I also, <laughs> I'm well, in a clown collective. I'm a funny guy, I swear. They're just, they're digging. They're, they're interrogating no, me. the videos and- are out there. He is a funny guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but just before we get to how funny you are, <laughs> um, you, you mentioned, you know, and you don't need to go into it, but like all of these traumas find their way into your work. Right. You mentioned uh, a Molotov cocktail of suicidal mm. dread, et cetera. Yeah. Suicide makes it into your work. The girl that you talked about, you didn't spend a lot of time here, but if somebody wanted to go read that, you t- I mean, that was someone who would come over to your house, the seven-year-old girl. She had a tough family situation. Well, saw, saw her, yeah, saw her every day. Well, That's yeah. a girl in the hallway as a piece on that. Exactly. So what I'm saying is like you're, and you you recognize this, I'm sure, you're lucky to be alive. I mean, with with all the stuff that you yeah. described at this table. Yeah. Um, could have gone another way. And I'm sure that's not lost on you. Well, absolutely. I mean, I have friends who are dead and OD'd and, you know, Susan is gone. And a lot of those pieces and that sort of trauma, um, you know, you carry with you. But also that when I became a performance poet, what also changed me is when I had my daughter and then at the age of 21, I started going hardcore to poetry slams because I, I just needed to express myself in some way. Um, and a lot of my friends were sort of really spiraling into hard drugs. And so I started going to poetry slams. And then I was meeting other people who had also come from all kinds of crazy ass traumatic backgrounds of their own, you know what I mean? Which were completely wildly different from mine. I mean, um, one of my ended up performance partners, Rupert Stanislaw, um, who I formed a trio with, the Suicide Kings, that he was from the Philippines. So it's like his whole his whole sense of growing up um, was like, I mean, his, you know, his friends would go shoplifting and the cops would, you know, chase you. And then if you lost your friend, um, someone could end up dead in the river. You know what I mean? And like, like just violence is a much more immediate and visceral thing. And, you know, he was involved in all kinds of, all kinds of shit I won't go into. Um, And I have a lot of friends like that. I mean, obviously from Oakland and, and, you know, I tell people sometime, um, not referring to anybody I just talked about, but I mean, you know, I, I certainly have met my fair share of murderers and and I'd say over half the people that I perform with um, have all been, you know, molested and traumatized and beaten and, and, and it's really like about what do you do next, you know what I mean? And that not taking this kind of like, you know, I was, I was stricken. I was, you know, et cetera. And be like, almost, I mean, fuck dude. It's like rape and molestation. I feel like for, to artists is almost so common. It's like a fucked up rite of passage. You know what I mean? And that like, instead of internalizing, like you had some fault with it, that it's, 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 you brought it. I mean, all that evil shit that comes with it. And it's, it's all wrong. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just 
awful things happen to good people, um, to innocents in particular, you know, and highly sensitive children often get sought out, you know, the quiet kids, the introverts, um, you know, I mean, I feel like they get, they get pursued even more, um, in some respects. And so all of that art and everything is like, yeah, you, you got to get it out of you. You know what I mean? And that's the same with, um, with the writing workshops that we do, the writing workshops in San Quentin and Juvies and, and things like that is, is it like, it, it's just going to burn in you. You know, uh, Jeff had this line that he'll hate me for quoting because he is from one of his old poems, but he says, uh, I have a choir of demons in my head and every one of them wants a solo before I die. And I've always loved that line. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, I mean, that's just what I feel like a lot, a lot of it is, is a lot of these pieces, they kind of burn in you. And then I feel like when I am able to get them out in some way that it's, it's, it exists and it's outside of me now, you know what I mean? So something like the God and the man, or, the, you know, these stories, um, these poems, things like that, that they, they exist outside of you. And I mean, I think that that's why I'm informed just as much by rap um, as I am by poetry or, or um, monologists or comedians is that there's a certain sort of ruthlessness in like getting this ugly shit out. You know what I mean? And, and, and so that, that, that to me is, it's kind of a wondrous thing, but I mean, I, I really feel that, I feel that all of my work is really, all of it is dark, <laughs> but, and some like half of it and I feel like I f facilitate and flip back and forth literally from project to project because it's either like acidic black comedy um, or it's just like unflinching, vicious. Um, I, I want it to like swing as hard as possible and to just be barefaced, ugly, you know, and have some and find the beauty in that with with lyricism and the artistry and the music of it. But I mean to be just absolutely as blunt and unflinching about it as, as possible. And, um, you know, and so like when I write fiction, I like to write a lot of crazy comedy stuff and fantasy. And then when I write poetry and, and rap and things like that, it's all informed by like hard, hard reality. And the suicide canes, that was a lot of our, our sort of mantra when we were performing for, for years. It was a joke that someone had also said about us, but, um, we would have our mini slogan is bring the darkness. And it was just like, we want to fucking hit every audience with like real shit. You know, even if it's funny, it's still real shit. You know, we're not just up here making up shit, mocking people that we don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, because the people in the audience who've been through real shit, you know, will recognize that right away. And, if they're not on stage, they're going to be real grateful to hear somebody that comes from that world. And all those worlds of, you know, violence and drugs and, you know, self-destructive, insane relationships and, you know what I mean? All that. Um, that it's, yeah, give, give some, put the ugly in the spotlight. You so know? you were talking about the Suicide Kings, a project mm -hmm. you had with Jeff and Rupert. Yeah. Um, what was that project? So that started when we, we all met really randomly at different shows. I met Rupert at Tourette's Without Regrets he, in Vallejo, and he had just robbed uh, several houses that week and was strung out on meth. Um, I'm sorry, Rupert, these are facts. Um, and he uh, tied for a poem 
for like think like third place or something we had a tie off and he had a snub nose that he like pulled out of his pants and was like using as a prop in his piece yeah he'd been hiding this gun in the bathroom all night and uh pulled it out and he was reading this piece about all his friends that had been murdered and that was how i met him (laughs) so i was like we should be pals and then I, i met jeff at the starry plow and we both did poems about Columbine that had just happened um, the same night. Um, and we were like, you know, we we kind of felt that same sort of um, sensibility. And so we realized in the world of poetry and stuff that we were coming from these kind of different backgrounds of, um, you know, sort of punk rock and drugs and crazy, you know, all that shit. And some poets are like coming from their college class and they like, read on the road and they want to, you know, drink some beer and write poems. And so we bonded very quickly because we had this much more sort of abrasive aesthetic. And, and so we started touring like crazy together as a team. We started doing writing workshops together at schools. They would invite us to come in together. Um, and then we started touring for years, um, would open for punk bands and rappers like Sage Francis and, um, B. Dolan and all kinds of shit. And, Uh, We ended up writing a play um, called In Spite of Everything, which was all about um, school shootings. And basically, that was the kind of framework. It was about about being writing workshop instructors that come and deliver a writing workshop in an English class the day before a student in that class comes back and kills everybody in the class and leaves a note implicating us. Um, And so it was... Uh, sort of a device well it really started as a device when we realized when we had done I mean I think I performed at like almost 150 plus schools um and so it really started as like what would happen if this actually happened um the blame would go on us right away because we're tattooed we have these crazy backgrounds everything that I've said we're very upfront um and it really begs the question of like should kids with these kinds of backgrounds come and talk to your kids are they going to corrupt them or whatever you know what I mean or should be these be the kids that are coming to talk to your kids and um and then it goes into basically all of these different things from um flashbacks and monologues and different characters and it's really about like kind of survival through art um and violence and just sort of all of the violence that we had gone through when we were younger and how do you deal with that as as a man, you know, and, and especially when you're trying to communicate your experiences to the youth, you know, in a real way without being false, um, but also trying to show them that there's a way. I mean, really, if it wasn't for writing and art, I, whoosh, <laughs> whoosh, you know, I don't know what, I mean, I know directly that Rupert directly, once when the Suicide King started, like, he was definitely stepped was able to step away. I'll just say that he like, you know, he got invited on like a fucking drive-by and was like, no, I can't, I'm gonna go to rehearsal. You know what I mean? And to me, that art has always been the driving thing. And um, and anytime I start to stray, you know, I mean, it's, it's those acquired demons got megaphones. You know what I mean? So anytime I start to stray, it's like I try to get back on, on art. And I mean, you know, so I got a tattoo of a shark on my arm with a, little guy with a holding a typewriter on his fin. I got that in a period of definite self-destructive spirals. And I was like, 
be a shark, motherfucker. Keep moving, keep moving. You know what I mean? It's like if you stop, you, you just got to keep going. And so I think a lot of that momentum. And there's a lot of kids that I've met later as adults that met us in school. And, and thank God that day helped. It worked. You know, some of them are like, there was this one poem that you did that, I mean, that stuck with me. And I would listen to it until my CD had scratches on it. And it like got me through. And that is probably the greatest thing that I'll ever do or ever achieve is, is I never had that person when I was in high school. No one ever was like, I absolutely understood. I was getting in trouble for my writing and I was flailing. You know what I mean? All of this is happening to me. And I, um, you know, not, not that like I'm extra special or, you know, extra horrible shit happened to me or whatever. I think that a lot of this happens to most teenagers, but they're not given an avenue to talk about it. And so what happens to that kid that's getting molested and traumatized and they're in whatever, and they're in school and they're just basically getting handed scripts to write and essays to write. But like, no one's actually saying, I want you to write all the ugliest shit out on this page and I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna send you to the school shrink, you know, unless you're making threats, right, to other students, that is the law. But I mean, like, I want you to go there, you know what I mean, and you're safe here. Like, I'm not gonna judge you, I'm not gonna tell your mom, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just gonna basically tell you how to maybe write this better, you know what I mean, and show you some other authors. Um, that, to me, is, is what matters. And so I still work with organizations like You Speaks, and um, I make a lot of films for them and so forth, and it's just, I mean, I see it all the time, the evolution of when you, there's nothing more important than when you give a kid a microphone and you say, go for it. And they're like, you know, some of them might be like, what do you want me to say? They're like, dude, say what you want to say. I'm not going to tell you what to say. You know what I mean? Like, I want to hear, and I want to hear how you talk. You know what I mean? You can cuss, you can rap, like you as sure as fuck are not going to offend me. You know what I mean? But the only thing that's offensive to me is that like, if you say some shit that isn't authentic to you, you know what I mean? And, and that to me is, is huge. You've done workshops at like 90 plus schools, San Quentin Penitentiary, YMCA, all these places. You know? Yeah. Have you had yeah, any I drive past San Quentin on the way here to this podcast. Yeah. It fucking sticks with me every time. Have you had any moments doing this work that have like really touched you, that really stand out, that you won't forget? Uh, San Quentin. <laughs> San Quentin. That was another life-changing experience. Yeah, we... Me and Jeff, we went in to do a writing workshop uh, and performance in San Quentin, and it's it's definitely a, a fucking terrifying experience. But I mean, it just from the literal step one, you know, at the gate, and the guard is like, "All right, so we're legally required to tell you that we have a no hostage negotiation policy." You're like, what does that mean? They're like, well, in the case that you are taken hostage, the state will not negotiate for your release. That is meant to protect you because essentially you have no real value to the inmates. It's far from comforting, right? And they have like just the fucking pepper spray cans are like the size of a keg. And anyways, so I went in there and we did this performance and we ran into a guy that we had met at Poetry Slams and that I hadn't seen in like, you know, a while. And then you run into that guy there. And I didn't ask what happened. But um, best believe when I got in my car in that parking lot, I was like, 
never selling drugs again, never doing dumb shit again. I mean, I was just like, man, it's just that easy, you know? And I mean, I did a whole bunch of knucklehead shit when I was young. I mean, you know, I have a joke in one of my songs of like, uh, I've just done many felonies. There's no way in hell I'm admitting, you know what I mean? It's a lot of my friends have growing up. And then you get to a point where you're like, okay, if I manage to escape with those, I don't, I don't need to add, add some more dice to the table. Also, I mean, I, I was able to perform at a continuation school that I was basically forced to go to after I was almost kicked out of high school. And I was able to go and do a writing workshop there. And that was really significant to me when I started because I saw that writing was a different sort of tool that there was this kind of odd, odd gray area of that if you wrote poetry, if it could be called poetry, it could get you into these very strange different kinds of educational systems because it had this sort of air of legitimacy to it. You know, oh, it's not rap, it's not comedy. Who the fuck is going to... Not many schools are going to invite in a rapper or a comedian, but if you called yourself a poet, even though you're basically a rapping comedian, (laughs) that you can be a part of this sort of educational curriculum and that at first felt like I was cheating you know and I was like you know some kind of weirdo in disguise and I realized that that was actually a really awesome way in to these different kinds of institutions and to be able to kind of bring that sort of sensibility that sort of same still you know having hip-hop infused and punk infused and things like that and that calling it poetry was a sort of veneer you know on top that added this kind of educational aspect but it could get us into so many different schools and places to some of those kids that I really wanted to to work with you know so I mean if you said I'm gonna do a rapping workshop you know um, hip-hop workshop um, some places back in the day in particular would not be cool with that you know but if you called it poetry Um, poetry is this very kind of safe, sedate, you know, term to it. And I've I've sort of always loathed it um, for so many years, but it was was just like a great kind of cloaking device (laughs) to like get you in the castle. You mentioned earlier that I think a phrase you've used to students has been, don't be a voyeur in your own life. I use that a lot in live shows too. Yeah, yeah. A lot, live shows in particular, yeah. Do you feel like that's something that you have done, or is it something you've seen others do, much to their own detriment? Wow. Um, I don't think that... I think that I can be a voyeur to my own life, but I try to snap out of it constantly. Um, I'm a big believer in in that just manifesting and making your will happen. And in some respects, I do that every month all the time you know what I mean I'm, I'm make a show happen every month you know I, I have a vision for a thing we make a flyer you book the people you pay the you know the, everything you fill a room with the folks I mean I just got back from Canada where we manifested Game of Thrones live fire and ice ice baby and it was uh, I mean it was the biggest cast I've ever put together like 45 people it was a sword fighting team of 20 people and just so much costumes and casts and fire and like we recreated the fucking battle for Winterfell like literally in a theater which is ridiculous to think that you can do that and I didn't think we could do that but I was like we're gonna do it and we did it 
You know what I mean? And, and that's that to me is the not to be a voyeur is to like, there's so much art and entertainment that is counting on you to be passive. Oh, have you seen this new Netflix series? Oh, have you seen this new Amazon? They're, they're like, they're just bombarding us with, with what you need to watch, what you need to read. But I think as an artist, you have to constantly be reminding yourself, they're like, you're the fucking show. You know what I mean? And, and you have to step up and do it. You have to do the hard work and it ain't going to be pretty. And it's, it's definitely usually not going to be glamorous. Um, but that's how these things happen. You know what I mean? And so that, um, that's to me is what that really means is that like, don't be a passive participant. Um, I think a lot of American culture uh, in some respects counts on you to do that. Um, the powers that be need you to be compliant, you know, go to work, go home, drink a Michelob and watch fucking TV, watch sports, watch people be active while you are eating chips. You know what I mean? Like be a voyeur and, and just constantly sit on the sidelines and sort of praise the people who get out there. And the difference is that it's like, well, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? If you went to a sports game or, or a lot of these shows, just like, what are you going to do? And a lot of times when I end Tourette's is I'm like, I'm like, when you go home, if anything, I want you to take from the show is to be inspired, you know, go home, write a thing, do a dance, take your clothes off in front of your mirror, make some collaboration, write some jokes, you know, do some shit, do some shit. Like everybody on this stage, the only difference between you and them is that they're like, I'm doing that. And they just kept doing it until they got that good, you know, and that is it. I mean, that's why every, every show we have, you know, pros, right? Um, and new folks, you know what I mean? Even the Game of Thrones live show, we had people who had never really done sword fighting before. And that may be their like, that started them on this whole path. And we have other people who have been sword fighting for four years, but it's only been four years. There was four years ago, that person was not that, you know? And then now they're like, fucking Jon Snow in this shit. So, <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, it's, it's, that's huge though, is, is, is to just like accountability, you know what I mean? In terms of like yourself, like, like, what am I going to do? You know? And instead of like, oh man, God, that writer's so good. You know, it's like, well, when are you going to write a thing? You know what I mean? And when are you going to, I mean, cause that's just like independent spirit. So I think my biggest problem is I just, I just fucking overwhelm myself all the time. You know what I mean? I, I got back and I just did this Game of Thrones show and I got back and I just did a film shoot today. I'm recording with y'all and then I have like two more film shoots and then I'm going to another festival and I'm running like a 90 minute vaudeville game show every night and I'm usually probably doing too much. And so some of this year, I think I'm really trying to sharpen my focus because I think I've taken the improv rule of yes and probably to the hilt in my life. <laughs> and people are like, man, you do a lot of shit. And I'm like, I, yeah, probably too much, you know? You want just a little bit too much food on the plate instead of not enough. That's, that's my philosophy. Well, anyway. I think it's also that, that I'm, I'm like, damn, man, so like damn near addicted to both films in terms of having, like, I feel like when a film is final and polished and, and, and it lives there, 
You know, it's like you have something on the library. You know, it's like a book you can look. You're, I can show that movie. That movie should be always as good as it was when I finished it. And I have a movie that's in film festivals right now, and it just won another award. Had another film I did on. Docu- what's, that, what's that newest one called? Uh, it's called Farmly. Um, it's written and performed by Buddy Wakefield, who's a international renowned uh, performance poet. It's about him growing up um, in Texas, and we shot it all in Texas last year. And then I have a documentary that I shot and uh, directed um, about torture in Kashmir. And it's totally brutal and, and interviewing the real victims of that violence. And so, you know, those have both come out this last month and I'm working on these other films and stuff. And so, so films to me, there's, there's this sense of permanence, um, which I love about it, even though all of that is a fucking ruse um but it feels more permanent and then i'm also addicted in a way to live shows so i'm just like my life is this constant balance of like trying to polish something that can live quote forever and then other shit that it's just like man on saturday that was like one of the greatest shows i think i've ever put on on saturday um because i realized that what most of the shows that i put on are missing is sword fights, you know what I mean? I'm on these like rap battles and, you know, circus shows, but like nobody gets stabbed, you know? There's no blast of fire in dragon suits. I mean, I'm just like, ah, like how do I, how do I replace that high? I had to have my partner like counsel me after the show was over. I was like, God, how am I gonna top that? She's like, we'll find a way, we'll find a way. You know, and I feel like I'm constantly running from like adrenaline highs of live performance and sort of the precision and the kind of plotting discipline that it takes to finish movies, which is sometimes maddening. And I think it's the only way that I keep myself sane. If it goes too much of the seesaw one way, then I, I start start flipping out. <laughs> I love it. So you're, you're a public figure, I would say. And as such, many people may develop an opinion of you from afar. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I'm sure they are right now. Given this, what do you feel like people get most wrong about you from afar? That I'm an extrovert? That I hear all the time. Um, they also, a lot of times, will hear one thing that I do and assume that that's like the totality of me or whatever. Um God, the amount of people that have come to a Threats Without Regrets where I'm very, very rowdy, aggressive, you know, encouraging, like, who wants to fuck tonight? You know, I'm a party MC at Tourette's. Um, But they're not really seeing that I'm doing that for the audience and for the performers. Like, I'm, 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 if you really listen to what I'm doing, past the, like, make some noise and the yacht and the rah-rah is I'm really policing that this is all about the people coming on stage and that they're brave, they deserve your love, um, that this is a, a whole awesome loving community. Um, I hate that phrase, but um, that there, there's a bunch of badass motherfuckers in this room you should know and make shit happen, you know what I mean? This is, there's a whole lot of awesome in this, in this room. So let's, let's make it a weirder world, let's be defiant, let's make crazy art, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, some people like, dear God, like a lot of the girls um, um, that I've dated, you know, past, oh, past like 10 years, they, like, they might come to a Tourette's or two and they think I'm like a fucking maniac. You know, they like think I'm like 
just like doing cocaine off strippers or something like every night, you know? And I'm like, I'm a writer and a filmmaker. Like a lot of what I do is lonely. You know, I'm like sitting there writing or I'm like memorizing pieces, walking around the parking lot. Um, and you know, I can be pretty quiet and, and focused. Um, and they're all parts of me, but it's like, I'm not just, just that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, and people think that I'm, I'm like way more like crude in like my private life. Um, just because I say bad words and it's totally false. I'm like a, I mean, I'm, I'm very much just a very silly introverted theater kid that has completely gone off the rails, but that's, that's still, still in my bones. You know what I mean? Is, is, uh, uh, that's, that's who I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much, I feel like a lot of the most badass performers I know though, are also just kind of basically like really fierce nerds, you know what I mean? That have gotten really good at their, nerd skill you know what I mean and so they can be kind of intimidating to people um but I mean it's it's all a ruse you know what I mean it's it's all it's all show I mean the dif- the difference is that of that and and say Elron right is I can turn myself off you know what I mean and a lot of times I try to um on purpose I don't want to keep the bullshit up you know I still will turn up be turned on and activated as like a host or whatever but like when it's even at the after party. I'm trying to talk to people as a real person and, you know, know, learn about them. What are they into? That kind of thing versus just selling more bullshit. Um, not about that. Yeah. It's like the performer versus the man, you know? Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah. And you can't separate the two, but there is, there are two modes. Right. And I think that when you're on stage that you, you have to learn how to make yourself larger than life. Um, to some degree and some nights you you're on it and some other nights you're kind of like faking it but Jesus Christ the amount of nights that you hit the stage and you're like you know the hungover depressed sick you know you had to take a bunch of cold medicine just so your voice sounds normal you know what I mean like you're kind of faking it a lot <laughs> you know what I mean you're like I'm so happy to be here and you're absolutely not and you wish that the show had gotten canceled because you know you're fucking depressed that day and you wish you could just eat ice cream and like but instead you're on stage and you're like come on let's rock you know i mean like there's a certain amount of like fakery that's necessary in order to be a performer and i think other performers understand that pretty quickly and implicitly um because it's our trade you know what I mean? It's like just what we do. You're like, oh fuck! Like I fucked my ankle up, and like, okay, I'm gonna fake I'm doing that trick, but I'm, you know what I mean? And but I'm gonna not really do it, but I'm gonna do this, or you know, whatever. Or your costume is wrecked, and so you, and so you know, there's a certain amount of like artifice. But I mean, that's the the you know the con in the confidence is like that's the hustle of it actors will tell you that's acting yeah that's right so i mean with performance it's 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 obviously it's a big big factor of it um i guess the difference is that the 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 merge that people don't get is that like if i was coming on i'm playing julius caesar right fine but i'm coming on and i'm 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 playing me you know and it's a version of me and i wasn't smart enough when i was younger to pick a stage name so unfortunately i'm stuck with everything I do from 
documentaries about torture and cashmere to clown shows, it's still unfortunately my same name. And so it becomes a very confusing thing for people. They're like, what the fuck is, what is this guy? Is he like a clown? Is he an idiot? Like, what is his, his thing? And to me, I'm very used to switching hats. You know what I mean? I feel like I can do a clown show and then teach kids the next day, work on a documentary that night. And like, that doesn't feel like I'm flipping, you know, from personalities or anything like that. that because to me, the root is sort of all the same. Yeah. You know? Well, I also think that probably helps you maintain a level of sanity. I mean, yes. in, in life, we're whatever not ri- version of sanity, I guess. I well, uh, the, the, the ability to get up and function and do push forward the projects that you want to push forward. Yeah. Because in life, we're not taught to be that way, which is why I think you may be a confusing figure for some. You do so many things, and yet so many people in life are encouraged to do like one thing or another thing or another thing. Some of what you've just described tonight is like, sometimes it would seem in opposition to one another. You know what I mean? Teaching right. kids in school, but yeah. then also hosting this giant uh, monthly variety show, Cabaret with, you know, and then sword fighters with yeah. bouts of flame. Yeah. I mean, this stuff all feels very, very different, but like you say, there's a through line through all of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a definite there's a definite through line and also something that when I meet a lot of new performers is I try to remind them um, a good friend of mine um, exists who's a break dancer. Um, when I met him, he was a badass break dancer from Miami. I met him at a show and he comes up, he's like, yo man, let me get on stage. He's got a gold grill and all this shit and I was like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm, I'm a B-boy, man. I was like, all right, let me see something. And he like just drops and like does a fucking head spin. I'm like, all right, okay, get on stage. You know what I mean? I, I need to fill some time anyways. And so he just starts dancing his ass off. And then, uh, you know, because I was stage and I was like, that's great. You should come in. We have B-boys all the time at, at the show I run in Oakland. He's like, I just moved to San Francisco. And I was like, that's awesome. Come. So then he ends up coming to the next show. And he's, you know, doing all this crazy B-boy stuff. And he brings his, his homie, this guy named Meezy, who was also another B-boy. And I reminded both of them, I was like, I was like, too many artists get locked in their sort of, uh, their lane is what I call it, right? And there's all this sort of like cultural paradigms with it. Like B-boys, for instance. You know, it's all about the culture and graffiti and you got to wear Adidas, and, you know, whatever. Um, no, I'm not dissing any breakdance culture I know it's evolved and changed and whatever but I mean it's it's it can be limiting right and I was like hey I just I mean obviously you guys are amazing b-boys but remember though it's like you're a performer you know what I mean you're a dancer you're not just a b-boy like you can do anything you know what I mean you can do more than most people can do um and so I you know kind of encourage them to try different stuff and when like book them for shows and like try doing a burlesque act and like try doing a duet and they're like you know what I mean? And, and all of that. And Exist is, has thanked me a lot um, for that later, though it was all his talent that achieved it. I mean, I didn't do shit. I just <laughs> pointed out, like, I was just like, you know, don't stay in your lane. You know what I mean? People are like, stay in your lane. Fuck the lane. You know what I mean? Take the freeway. Be like, I want to, you know, if you're a poet, because I see like slam poets, they get locked in the poet world. And they're like, I guess I'm going to academia and I must get an MFA and like, Everything I say must be abstract and be like, no, you can write dick jokes too. You know, you can write fan fiction. You can write. And I feel like a lot of the successful people that I've met is they started somewhere and then they switched or they whatever. And they're like, I'm bored of this. And they, you know, and then they do something completely different. And so, I mean, the problem is, yeah, I get bored real quick. And so I think that after all these years that I'm like, I need to figure out what's the, 
I'm, I'm now at a point where I'm like, all right, what's the big thing um, that I work? I'm, so I have, a, I have a film that I'm writing right now that I'm, I'm really excited about that I want to get done before the end of the year. I have like a bunch of other stuff in development and, um, and also survival. You know what I mean? As like an artist, you have to constantly be on the grind and on your hustle and you're always looking for different kind of vantage points to, to make it, you know what I mean? Because just gotta eat. Yeah. God, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's the advantage the pro and con of being a freelance artist slash performer slash filmmaker is, um, that you're free to do a lot of different things. You need to be available for all the things, but you're just kind of, sometimes you're just literally like, I have no idea how you're paying rent, you know, in like two months, you're just hope that it comes and you just kind of keep, keep going. And I've, I've been a freelance uh, filmmaker and performer strictly for the past um, like five, six years, I think. Um, and before that, I've fucking done everything, you know, bartender and teacher and uh, everything, you know what I mean? So a lot of times, same time, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so a lot of it is, is keeping as many balls in the air so that you can survive. You talk about survival in one way. I'm curious about it in another way. Hmm. You're 41 now. That's right. Uh, there was an SF gate article I think about five years ago where you talked about how you were at a point in one, one point in your life where you were at a dangerous crossroads. We've talked mm. a lot about that tonight. Mm. You felt that you had all the underpinnings of someone who could become a dangerous criminal, a manipulative parasite, et cetera. Mm. Do you feel like the life you've created for yourself now has led you away from like the crossroads of darkness? Or do you feel like you still have the capacity at 41 to go astray if you're not mindful? I think my friends would beat the shit out of me if I tried to go <laughs> anywhere towards that shit. I mean, if I'm sure if I told my friends like, hey, you know what? I think I've really cracked how to fix you and it's going to cost you $49, but I wrote a book that just would slap the shit out of me. Um, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that the thing I wrestle with the most is, um, you know, my own shadows and, and everything else that I kind of carry. Um, that's, that's, I think that the biggest thing that I wrestle with, but, um, no, I mean, I, I have just so many friends that we're all just kind of doing crazy wild things. I think the thing that, that I'm always trying to battle is just sort of those kind of self-destructive impulses that have always been, you know, sort of built into it. And I see that with a lot of my friends as well. Um, whether it's their sexuality, you know what I mean? They're like, they should be practicing more and they're just fucking a whole lot. You know what I mean? And you're like, Hey, you shouldn't really work on your shit. You know, you're like fucking 20 people a week. You know, I know that's great. Bravo. But I mean, like, you know, like, <laughs> tone it in a little bit you know let's get some things done um and so i mean i think that that i'm i'm you know engaged uh my partner is also a um incredible underwater performer and filmmaker um and so that's been amazing because our our we just absolutely sort of understand how our lives work and that's been a really rare thing for me um and so that's that's been phenomenal. I mean, like we did a film shoot today and she's a rare blend that has like the performance and the filmmake, filmmaking aspect of all that, you know, that technical brain that can do all that um, and is pretty fantastic. And so to me, it's it's really about trying to figure out what are the 
the big pieces that I want to do. Um, that's next. Um, I think that live shows um, can get wearing. You know what I mean? Like you can, if you're on the road a lot, you're touring a lot, you're this and that, especially when you do a lot of vaudeville because um, it's not like the same as being in like a band. You know, it's very much about the live, that thing. You know, you had to be in that room to see it. Right. It's not like you just show up and you play a song, you know. Um, so when I host circus stuff and doing vaudeville shows like that, that has a very kind of explosive, um, ephemeral quality to it. You know, you like ruled the world and you got standing ovations. And, you know, I mean, literally on Saturday night, I got over half the audience naked in the aisles. You know, and that's awesome. And then it's like two days later and you're like, all right, now what? You know, I mean, it's like it doesn't it doesn't carry over. But one day later, you were feeling great still. <laughs> one day later, exactly. Yeah, Dude, but then, of course, you got to the hunt continues. Yeah, and then you later. and then you and then you got to come back. So I mean, it's it's like you know, you're always kind of chasing chasing a thing, and I think that um, that chase is is essential. And I think that those kind of no, I mean, I think that those dark crossroads are always inherent, though. Um, you know, you got to make sure that you're, you're doing art for the right reason. You know what I mean? That you are, um, not being just manipulative of the audience for your own benefit. You know what I mean? That you're, you're doing it for, for, for their entertainment, for fun. You know what I mean? For, um, you know, not something that's like selfish motivated. Um, and so I think, I mean, those things you always need to kind of keep in check and um, who knows? I mean, if I get a terminal disease, all bets are off. You know what I mean? If I can make a cult three months, motherfuckers, like clock is ticking. You know, I'm like, let's see what we can do. Um, I think that I would be actually at a disadvantage because I've talked so much shit on religions that like, um, I mean, the thing is, I think that anybody can make a cult. It's, but then again, you live in America and yeah, it's not rein that reinvention and cult founding type that's, activity is, is pretty common. We've Turn seen it time leaf. and time yeah. again. Turn a new leaf. I had a vision. I had a change of heart. I, uh, you know, I mean, who it, better than me? Yeah, it's it's not. The thing is, it's not hard. It's really not hard. And people act like it can't happen to them. They act like I would never be a part. You know what I mean? And and it's it's ridiculous. It's like ludicrous. I mean, go to a sports game. Motherfuckers are maniacs. People are getting parking lots. You know, and, and beating each other up like you a Raiders fan. You know, what I mean, it's like the cold mentality is all around us constantly, you know. And I mean, the difference is on how far you want to take it and, and how many mechanisms you have for control. You know, you look at Nexium, um, you look at Jonestown. I mean, like a lot of the mechanics are the same. You know, they're always the same. They'll always work the same, you know. And so and they always work that I'm trying to help you. You know what I mean? That's that's how you sell it always. So you're like, you know, I had a vision, but I had a vision on how to help you. You know, so yeah, when I start saying shit like that, then you know that. <laughs> well, then we'll have you back on. Yeah, and you'll know. It'll that. be a very different. And I will be I'll time. be espousing my latest book product slash uh, salve slash hairspray slash condom that will prevent uh, all pregnancy. Um, and damnation, you know, and whatever the fuck. And a better mousetrap. That's right. Jamie DeWolf, is there anything that we left out tonight that you would like to mention? Um, boy, yeah, we sank down the religious quicksand pretty quick. 
Um, I would say that honestly, if anybody is interested in two inches or one sentence of what I've said, um, is to actually go and check out a lot of my short films. Um, probably because they're all collaborative. They're more than me. Um, they're feature some of the best performers I know. And those are everything from hard hitting pieces written with, um, uh, written by young poets and that I've turned into films, um, all the way to kind of dark, crazy, twisted comedies. I also have a feature film called Smoked about a cannabis club robbery in Oakland. It's totally deranged, batshit insane. And you can find that on Amazon and iTunes and stuff like that. And I'm constantly putting on shows. So if you heard any of this and it didn't scare you off, <laughs> Threats Without Regrets is every first Thursday of the month. Where is that? Uh, that's at the Oakland Metro, yeah, every first Thursday of the month. Place. And I'm involved in lots of crazy projects and films. And um, yeah, there's a lot we didn't talk about, but uh, you can find me and check it out for yourself. JamieDeWolf.com. Hooray. Thank y'all. Tom Gaffey, closing thoughts. Holy cow. Holy cow. <laughs> Milk that cow. <laughs> Milk that cow. No. It's, and shear that it's sacred, against, uh, it's I, a I sacred sheep. That's right. It's yeah. follow the, yeah, I always get yeah, that wrong. No, what is that? that that's uh, kill the sacred cow. That's right. There you go. I think show up at uh, first Thursday in Oakland and kill some sacred cows. Mm-hmm. That's the big one. Well, and your whole philosophy is trying to not make it about you, trying to make it about others, provide uh, not only like platforms, but also like, mm. you know, transforming people's ideas about what they can do. Mm. And the, the only reason you sit at this table tonight is because you did that with someone named Jake Ward. That's right. And he's a previous guest on this program. And uh, and you, he's and he's doing it. He's yeah. doing it out here. I mean, he, he came it. to a Tourette's and he said, this is awesome. I want to do something like that. Um up, you know, where I'm up north in Santa Rosa and, and so forth. And um, uh, he was even like, maybe it should be like a Tourette's type thing. And I said, no, you, you do your thing. I'll tell you everything that I've learned and, and whatever else. And and he fucking did it and has made this amazing show. And it's awesome. And it celebrates all these crazy different kinds of performers. And it's it's absolutely the same kind of philosophy and action. You know, and it's it's says Jake Ward presents, but it's not about Jake Ward. You know, it's about him showcasing all these incredible artists. Yeah. And he and he's just been plugging away and he's put on amazing events yeah. that this this area needs. Yes. You know what I mean? And that's the thing is that like someone has to step forward, right? Somebody has to. And it's not glamorous. It's a lot of fucking handing out flyers people like i don't want your flyer you know it's making posters it's like dealing with very difficult personalities and egos and divas and fucking drama just to get your celebratory event up you know you're like god how many fucking assholes i gotta deal with i'm trying to make something fun here for the world to come to and yeah i mean some of the shows at the whiskey tip have just been phenomenal and they have that same vibe of like you know celebrating all different kinds of all different kinds of performance all different kinds of like humor and different talents and skill sets and i mean they're coming up on their fifth year so you performed at one of the first ones and you took him aside the and very you, and first you, and one. you said to him you should do this monthly and guess what he did that was five did. years ago and he's I still did. doing it to I this did. day i said i said hey <laughs> If you think your life can handle it, it's a choice. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to pretend it's not a lifestyle choice. And it's, it's no joke. But I was like, it's probably, you'll have more momentum 
and uh, you'll just have more of a rhythm, you know what I mean, if you do it monthly. If you do it every kind of three months, four months, you sort of got to dust yourself off every time. You're like, all right, here we go, and, you know, start to grease the rust, you know, and, and so forth. But, I mean, it's like when it's once a month, it starts to become like I said, you know, the church kind of metaphor or whatever, but I mean, it becomes a communal event. You know, people come there because they're like, ah, oh, it's a, I get to see something new, you know, yeah. that they know that they're going to get exposed to different kinds of, of performance. And it also works reverse. Like I have new performers that will perform at his show. Um, I'll go to his show and then I'm like, this person's amazing. Then they'll come and perform at my show. And it also makes a route for these different performers to also encourages them to keep making their awesome shit. You know, and I tell the audience a lot of times, I'm like, look, every dollar that you paid at the door goes to encourage every one of these artists not to go and be like, ah, fuck it, let's take a day job. Like, no, go be a contortionist. You know what I mean? Be a badass, do that. And the more shows that are out there, the more people making spaces for those performers, the more that, that they're able to polish and get better at it. I mean, what the fuck would Harry Houdini do? You know what I mean? Like he had to have all those spots, all those venues. And and this was one of them. Was it really? Yeah, he performed on this stage. You're, what? You're sharing a stage with Harry Houdini. What year was that? 1914. Get the fuck yeah. out of here. I'm actually just just read a book on Houdini. Yeah. I had no idea that he had a brother almost as bad as that, badass as him. Yeah. I don't think many people knew that. Not anymore. Uh, it was so common that it was a brother act almost in 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 a lot you know, of those. That, that he's yeah. They started as a brother act, and yeah. then Houdini went off solo yeah. with his wife. Yeah. Um. And then Houdini got so massive that he got his brother back into it and basically gave him this whole shtick of like trained by the master Houdini. Houdini <laughs> has shown him his greatest tricks. And many people didn't even know they were brothers because yeah. he had a whole nother name. And yeah, they're just absolutely conspiratorial. And, and that's yeah. amazing. As of tonight, you have shared the stage at different decades, different centuries with well, Harry Houdini. Well, I'm going to be the person that doesn't escape the straitjacket. <laughs> it's going to be my life. <laughs> Jamie DeWolf, thank you so much for joining us <laughs> thank tonight. You so much. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure to get to know you and all the work that you do. I'm almost done with my outro. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, your generosity of conversation is incredible. And uh, thank you for showing us why you make what you do. I think your work becomes that much more interesting and that much more valuable when we learn your personal backstory. Awesome. Thank so you. Thank you so much. The man's website is jamiedewolf.com. You, so you can find information on there about most of what we've talked about tonight. Mm -hmm. Go see his shows, stream his films, read his poetry. Jamie DeWolf, one more time, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>